0: to take your scripture and turn with me to the Gospel of Mark, Mark chapter 3, we'll be reading this morning, uh, verses uh, 22 uh, through 30, Uh, Mark chapter 3, uh, 22 through 30, we just read together of uh, Jesus calling uh, his disciples to him and appointing twelve, constituting uh, the church uh, sending them out uh, to preach, to do mighty works, testifying to the to the truth of who Jesus uh, is. But we also saw that uh, his family, uh, having heard of all that was happening in the life of Jesus, came to came to get him and thought that he was that he was out of his mind. And so we pick up the life of Jesus here in Mark three, uh, verse. 22, And this is the living and abiding word of God. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebul and by the prince of demons. He casts out the demons. And he, that's Jesus, called them to him and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? Truly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven, the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying he has an unclean spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray uh, for his help. Heavenly Father, we've just sung together that uh, together, Lord, we know that we're dependent on your almighty grace, that we would... Mark your word that we would hear your word. We know, Lord, that without the work of your Holy Spirit, even when the Bible's read or a sermon is preached, that these words remain words uh, upon a page. But we know, Lord, that through your gracious work by your Holy Spirit, the words we hear, the words we read are written upon our heart. We may know them, believe them, uh, and then go forth to live them. And so, Lord, we pray. That you would graciously be in our midst, working in us, among us, even in this time. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, I wonder if you've ever uh, heard of or played played the game, Would You Rather? You ever hear that game? I don't know if it's just a children's game, but uh, uh, it's a game where um, you are given too often equally uh, often unpleasant things to choose from, and you have to choose one or the other. So it might be something like this. Would you rather step on a nail uh, or uh, get a root canal? And you have to choose. Uh, Would you rather lose sleep uh, or lose money? Would you rather eat a rotten tomato or a uh, moldy piece of bread? You know, something like that. And you have to choose. Well, as we come back into the life of Jesus, you're thinking, what does this have to do with the life of Jesus Well, uh, which, would you rather, which would you rather believe that Jesus is out of his mind or believe that Jesus is actually evil because this is what we're reading in the word of God last time it was his family who'd heard things about him and uh, said we gotta go get him we gotta go take him home Um, And here we find out at the beginning of this chapter that it's scribes who come uh, and believe that Jesus is actually in league with the evil one. Now, this is important, of course, because we're seeing the options, aren't we, as we go through the Gospel of Mark? Crazy, uh, evil, and then, of course, there's the the other option, of course, which C.S. Lewis pointed out so clearly many years ago. Uh, He's either crazy, evil, or he is Who he says he is. Uh, But the answer, of course, uh, to that and and what you believe about Jesus uh, makes all the difference. So you need to be convinced this morning. I need to be convinced all the more about the truth of who who Jesus is. Now, we saw last time the uh, disciples were uh, called to Jesus by his sovereign choice and desire. He, he brought his disciples near to be with him. That's the Christian life. We're drawn near to Jesus. But we're not called just to stay with Jesus and fellowship with him. We saw last time that, uh, yes, we commune with Jesus, we know him, and then we are appointed to go out. The apostles are appointed to go out. They're sent out to preach. Uh, they're sent out to work Mighty wonders. And as the uh, twelve apostles, as the foundation of the church, along with the prophets, uh, the rest of the church is built upon their ministry. And so they're given these extraordinary gifts to to cast out demons. That are the the marks, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 12, of an apostle. And those twelve apostles are gone. And that foundation has already been laid. But the Bible also says that, that we are sent out as the church. We're sent out to also proclaim the truth of who Jesus is and testify by our deeds, not not uh, not casting out demons. We don't have those signs and wonders as uh, the church today, but we are to prove uh, that Jesus is true by the fruit of the spirit in our lives, by the deeds we do in love and mercy, showing to the world that not only have we been with Jesus, but in our life, Jesus lives and Jesus reigns so that others will come. To know Him. Now you kind of see that pattern actually in your Christian life because on the Lord's Day we come and we commune together with the Lord Jesus and with God Himself and we're nurtured and strengthened in our faith as we come and hear His Word. And then uh, we've got six days to labor and to do all our work. And then we come back on the Lord's Day and we're nurtured and refreshed in the Gospel. And then we go out, we commune, and we serve. And then, of course, we saw last time that all of us are always compelled to respond to this Jesus, even as his family had to respond, and even as later in the Gospel, uh, Jesus will turn again to his disciples and say, Who do the crowds say I am? And they'll get all sorts of responses. And then he'll say, Who do you say I am? And Peter says, Well, you're the Christ. You are the one. Uh, But his family's having a hard time. They're struggling. They say he's out of his mind. Now, what about, though, what about the religious folks in Jesus' day? Surely folks who knew their Bible would respond differently to Jesus. What about scholars and academics and those who had studied in college and seminary? What about those who were experts in the law? That's what a scribe was. Matthew calls them Pharisees, but here it's a particular Pharisee. It's a scribe, an expert, uh, They're called elsewhere in the Bible, in the law. I mean, they knew the Bible backwards and forwards. They knew the scriptures. I mean, everyone else would have looked up to them as the super spiritual, eminently religious, clearly pious leaders of God's people. Surely they would know who Jesus really is. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebul and by the prince of demons. He casts out demons. So we've got two things here this morning. We've got the charge against Jesus, and we've got Jesus' uh, refutation of the charge. So first of all, the charge. The scribes are the teachers of the law. Uh, the Sanhedrin was the Jewish ruling council that met in Jerusalem. And uh, so these scribes come down from, uh, from Jerusalem to Jesus. Now, we already read last time, all sorts of people are coming to Jesus. They're coming from the north, they're coming from the west, from the east. Uh, they're coming from the south. Uh, his family came to take Jesus home. Uh, the scribes also come down from Jerusalem. Remember, in the Bible, you're always either going up or down to Jerusalem. You're never going over to Jerusalem or east to Jerusalem. And that's because Jerusalem's 2,400 feet above sea level. And uh, Capernaum here by Galilee is about 600 feet below sea level, the Sea of Galilee. So it's always, always up or down. And they're coming down from Jerusalem. And these scribes are clearly on some kind of mission to find out what's the source of this disturbance in Capernaum. Because they've heard, uh, like everyone else, uh, crowds are gathering to this man, Jesus, kind of like when a new business or... Maybe church opens up here in the community or somewhere nearby and you notice tons of vehicles in their, in their parking lot and everyone's wondering, you know, what's going on there? Uh, what's the attraction? Why the crowds? And when these scribes get there, this is their conclusion. Jesus is not mad or out of his mind. That would just be physical and psychological weakness. No, their conclusion is that Jesus is in his right mind. He has full possession of his faculties. But he himself is possessed of an unclean spirit, and Jesus is, in fact, in league with Beelzebul. Now, this word, no one knows what this word means, really. It's never found, really, in other other place. Sometimes it's translated Beelzebub. Beelzebub means Lord of the dwelling, Lord of heaven. Beelzebub is uh, actually the name of a Philistine god from the Old Testament that we read about, and that's why some translate it that way. That word literally means the Lord of the flies. But clearly what they're talking about here, as they describe it in Mark 3, he's uh, being accused of being in league with Beelzebul, the prince of demons. And as Jesus responds, he makes it even clearer. We find out that he knows that what they're really referring to is Satan himself. Satan, the word Satan means the adversary. Why is Satan called the adversary? Because he is adverse or he is opposed to everything that has to do with the glory of God. No matter what it is, he's opposed. That's why he's called the adversary. And so here's the charge: Jesus. It's not that he's out of his mind. He's wicked. He's evil. He's possessed. He's even that he is he is demonic. Now, why would they say such a thing? Later in the Gospels, Pilate, Pontius Pilate, when Jesus is uh, up for, up for death. Pilate's going to give us a hint later in the gospel. When he offers to the crowd... about why, why, why is this going on? When he offers to the crowd to release Jesus and let him go. Because the Bible says, For Pilate knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. Oh, we find that out at the end of the story. Why are they calling him a demon? Well, because... Pilate will understand these 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 scribes and Pharisees, they gave over Jesus because they were jealous. He was uh, impinging on their on their turf, if you will. They wanted glory for themselves, not for Jesus. And so Jesus must be condemned and made less so that they would be seen as righteous and 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 made more. Much different, of course, you'll know, was the response of John the Baptizer, who, when confronted with the growing fame of the name of Jesus, said, Yeah, he must increase, and I must decrease. Well, it wouldn't be the last time that Jesus would be charged with, uh, with being evil. In the Gospel of John, Jesus is talking about how he is the, uh, he is the good shepherd of his sheep. In John chapter 10, um, this is what Jesus says. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock and one shepherd. This all sounds so good. For this reason, the Father loves me because I... And, and now he's talking about the cross. Because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. He's talking about giving himself. Ah. For the salvation of his people. I have authority to lay it down, my life. And I have authority to take it up again. This charge I've received from my Father. My Father sent me to lay down my life for the sins of the sheep. And then the Bible says this in John 10 19. There was again a division among the Jews because of these words. Many of them said, He has a demon and is insane. Why listen to him? What? Others said, these are not the words of one who's possessed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? <laughs> so there were some. And God was trying, but a great many said, he's, he's talking about being the good shepherd and laying down his life for his sheep. And they say, he's insane. Crazy. He's evil. Why is this so important, friends? Well, the point here, of course, is this. Jesus is not an ordinary religious teacher who comes upon the scene of history simply with some good moral teachings for you to consider to apply to your life. Or set aside other good advice you might receive from YouTube or Facebook or the nightly news or a talk show host or a neighbor. You know, you got your folks you listen to at night you got your podcast in the morning, you go to church on Sunday, and you just add Jesus in there. The life and ministry of Jesus was so unusual. His claims were so spectacular, and what he says was so powerful, and what he did was so wonderful, that those who saw and those who heard and those who witnessed the life and ministry of Jesus knew this man could not simply be ignored or placed alongside every other rabbi they'd ever heard or seen before and safely set aside on the shelf at Barnes & Noble in the self-help spirituality section with everybody else. No. The options, again, as Lewis put it so clearly, he's either exactly who he said he was, Savior, King, Lord, He's a lunatic, or as we see the accusation here, the worst type of devil. Now the point is, is why study the gospel? Why study the gospel of Mark? Because anyone who reads this gospel, walks with Jesus for any length of time upon the pages of Scripture, is forced to come to a conclusion themselves. What do I think of Jesus? I've been with him now for several chapters in this gospel. What do I believe about Jesus? Do I put myself in the camp of his family at this point in their lives, thinking Jesus is mad? Do I put myself in the camp of those who should have known better, who grew up in the church, who knew their Bibles, but actually saw Jesus as their adversary? And in league with the evil one, you know, someone who's really out to get me, trying to deceive me, really has no care for me or love me and wants me to be miserable like Satan? Or or do I fall down before him and call him Savior and Lord, the one who has power and authority to forgive me, save me, and rescue me? Those are your only choices. What difference does it make? This is the difference between those who come to church to worship the living God And those who come to church because they're afraid not to. This is the difference between those who hear a sermon with open ears, knowing the Bible is the word of their Lord and Savior who loves them, saves them, transforms them. And those who have the sound waves of someone's voice hit their outer ear and then fall flat to the ground. This is the difference between those who desire with all their heart to live day by day according to the words of this Jesus. Please Him, honor Him, exalt Him because He's worthy, He's big, and I'm small. And those who desire with all their heart to live day by day for their own pleasure and honor because Jesus is small. And I am big. It's the difference, friends, between the Christian profession by heart, lip, and life. Jesus is Lord. And the life which is not yet seen, Jesus, for who He truly is. Well, the charge, this is serious. The charge against Jesus is serious. He's evil. But his his reputation of the charge is the, uh, I think you'll find, by God's grace this morning with me, uh, fairly uh, conclusive. Notice what Jesus says, verse 23. And he called them to him and said to them in parables. Short stories or allusions or comparisons of earthly life teaching us spiritual truth, a parable. How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom can't stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he can't stand, but is coming to an end. So Jesus really gives three parables, that is, these simple stories illustrating spiritual truth. Really three comparisons. The truth is, Jesus says, Satan does not attack himself. Uh, How can Satan cast out Satan? That is, if what you're saying is true about me, if I'm evil, possessed of an unclean spirit, in league with the evil one, Satan would be attacking and destroying himself. This makes no sense, says Jesus. For example... Here's three parables. One sentence word pictures convey the point I'm making, says Jesus. And first of all, note note immediately here as Jesus responds, the scribes, though they hate Jesus, and though they think and want to accuse him of being evil, though that's all true, the scribes admit, the scribes admit Jesus is casting out demons. They can't deny it. Recognize that the evidence is unquestioned. That people have been forgiven, have been changed, transformed, healed, set free, restored, made whole, is not in question. This is happening through the life and ministry of Jesus. It's unquestionable, these facts. Clear for all the world to see, just as they're clear for you to see today. Clear for our neighbors to see, in Salem and Gloucester counties to see. The evidence of lives changed by Jesus cannot be denied. You are different because you belong to Jesus. They may still hate Jesus, but the evidence can't be denied. But how does Jesus refute the charge? Well, very simply, if what they're saying is true, Satan would be undermining his own kingdom. Satan would be working against himself and his ultimate purpose. Three parables are these, a kingdom divided... House divided, a person divided. And if any of these things is true, says Jesus, that kingdom, that house, that person can't stand. It's coming to an end. It's coming to nothing. There'd be no Satan. There'd be no demons. There'd be no evil at all. It would devour itself, but Satan is still clearly at work. So the picture is here, Satan destroying himself, destroying his own house, destroying his own kingdom. Now, President Lincoln and many others have quoted a portion of this verse out of context, mind you, in the history of our nation. The house divided, alluded to by Lincoln, of course, was a house with half slave and half free. But the picture of Jesus here is of a house, all evil, seeking its own downfall. It's nonsensical, says Jesus. It's irrational. It's foolish in the extreme. Satan is not divided in his allegiance. If so, he'd be done and have no power at all. But that is not the case. Now, I'm thinking maybe a sports analogy might help. Okay? Imagine a Phillies-Yankees baseball game. I know that's hard for you to do. Uh, Where a Yankee player was accused of being an agent of the Phillies. That is, this Yankee slugger was hitting home runs whenever he came to the plate. Throwing out runners at home from right field. Making diving catches unbelievable. After the game, the media accuses this player of secretly being in league with the Philly ownership. Does that make sense? Why would the Philly management want to destroy and defeat their own team by enlisting uh, a Yankee player to destroy them? If that was your game strategy, that Philly team would not last long. I just realized I probably should have switched it around. From the Phillies But anyway. This is Jesus. That's foolish. You're not going to enlist the best player to destroy your team. Uh, no one's going to vote. No, one, no one's going to fall. You're done. Just as foolish as a homeowner laying out the red carpet for a thief who wants to rob that homeowner of all his belongings, leaving a little note by the open window. All needs the window open... Uh, There's a tray of milk and cookies for you. Help yourself as you take my 60-inch television home. No. You see what Jesus is saying here. Unbelief and rejection of Jesus as Savior, Lord and King, often takes the form of the most foolish ideas imaginable. They can't deny people are being set free by the gospel of Jesus Christ. So instead... They make uh, unbelievably ridiculous accusations. For instance, that he is in league with the evil one. But that really shouldn't surprise us, I guess. Because the Bible tells us, in Romans 1.18, for instance, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness, this is what we do apart from Christ, by their unrighteousness uh, suppress the truth. For what, for what can be known about God is plain to them, right? Evidence is clear for them to see, because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. And so the evidence is so obvious, so the Bible says they're without excuse. But then it says this, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But, they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. Don't miss this, friends. It isn't Jesus, who you're reading about in the Gospel of Mark, it isn't Jesus, who is out of his mind. It is the mind, the Bible says, of unbelievers who see this Jesus, who hear this Jesus, who have all the evidence of Jesus before them, who constantly suppress the truth as it is in Jesus. Those are the ones who truly, the Bible says, lose control of their senses. What are you doing? He's come as the shepherd to save you. Their thinking becomes futile and dark and dark. Wasn't it G.K. Chesterton who said something like, it's not that the atheist who rejects God believes in nothing, but he's willing to believe in anything. Anything but the truth. How does this work? Well, we deny the Creator who made us, despite the evidence for the Creator. We deny the image of God in which we are made, that we are made by God, men and women, even that. Despite... What we all thought was obvious evidence. We deny that too. We deny we are sinners. Again, despite the evidence. And of course then we deny we need a Savior. Despite the evidence. In fact, we will go, as the scribes do, to incredible lengths. No matter how ridiculous, to push God and Jesus off the throne. My favorite illustration in this tendency is Richard Dawkins. In his book, The Blind Watchmaker, Richard Dawkins wrote this. Biology is the study of complicated things that give the appearance of having been designed for a purpose. But then he goes on to argue that they were not. Dawkins will proclaim over and over again, no design, no designer in the universe, no God." But when Ben Stein, in his documentary Expelled, asked him, Dawkins, what do you think is the possibility that intelligent design might turn out to be the answer to some issues in genetics or evolution? That's what Dawkins said. It could be that at some earlier time, somewhere in the universe, a civilization evolved by probably some kind of Darwinian means to a, a very, very high level of technology and Designed a form of life that they that they then seeded onto perhaps this planet, and I suppose it's possible that you might find evidence for that if you look at the details of biochemistry and molecular biology, you might find a signature of some sort of designer. Now, in case you did, you missed that, just so you're following along, Dawkins says this: that is, life on Earth was planted here by aliens from an unknown civilization somewhere in the universe, and that is supposedly. More rational than belief in God. These aliens for whom we have absolutely no evidence whatsoever. And uh, Stein pressed me and said, Well, wait a minute. If you, well, okay, you're, you're kind of admitting you'll find design, so you're giving, there might be some kind of designer. Um, doesn't that mean that you might believe in, in the, might it not be the God of the Bible? And Dyer said, No. Nothing like that. And uh, Stein said later, so Professor Dawkins was not against intelligent design, just certain types of designers, such as God. Mm -hmm. Anything but God. Anything but, but Jesus as king. Because, you see, I want to be king. No matter how ridiculous or irrational it might be, friends, the heart of unbelief would rather embrace the lie than bow the knee to King Jesus. It would rather call Jesus evil, despite the evidence, than embrace him as Lord. The Russian novelist, Fyodor Dostoevsky, has one of his characters in Notes from the Underground say this, The more conscious I was of goodness... And of all that was sublime and beautiful, the more deeply I sank into my mire, and the more ready I was to sink in it altogether. Oh. This is where the scribes have sunk, sinking into the mire in the face of the sublime and the beautiful. But if their explanation makes no sense, what is the reality then? actually is happening in the life and ministry of Jesus. If he's not out of his mind, he's not a tool of the evil one. Um, uh, what's, what's, What's left as an explanation for what we're reading and seeing together here in the Gospel of Mark? Well, this is what Jesus says in verse 27. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed, He may plunder his house. The kingdom and house of Satan is not divided against itself. Satan is not seeking his own ruin, says Jesus. Instead, Satan, here the strong man, has been bound, and his house, Jesus explained, is being plundered of its goods. According to the Word of God, there are two kingdoms that we need to reckon with, and only two kingdoms. There is the kingdom of Satan, and there is the kingdom of God. There is the kingdom of darkness, and there is the kingdom of light. There is the kingdom of evil, and there is the kingdom of Jesus Christ. There is the kingdom in which men and women and children, the Bible says, and Jesus alludes to here, are in bondage to Satan and sin, And there's the kingdom in which men and women and children are set free to live in service of the rightful King Jesus. And here's the beauty. Jesus says, this is what is happening in the life and ministry of Jesus, according to the words of Jesus himself. That in his preaching that the kingdom is at hand, in his calling the world and you and I and everyone to repent and believe in the gospel, In his authoritative word and powerful deeds, Jesus is saying that his kingdom is breaking into this world. And his ministry is a confirmation that Satan is being bound. And his goods, that is sinners bound in sin, are being plundered, taken, rescued. Restore to their rightful owner and sovereign. How do we know this? Well, Luke 13:16, we read of a woman set free by Jesus. said Jesus of her, "And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham whom Satan bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day. Jesus does the loosing. The woman was bound by Satan. You know this is true. Ephesians 2 tells us this. And you, he's speaking to the church, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Before the church was the church. Apart from Jesus Christ, how are they described? Well, they're under the wrath of God and they're following uh, the prince of the power of the air. They're under his influence. Romans 6 tells us uh, that there are only two kinds of people. There are those who are slaves to sin and there are those who are slaves to righteousness. Those who are set free from slavery to sin and the grip of Satan... Set free to live for Christ uh, as the good and glorious Master. The Bible says we are all, at one sense, slaves. That is, we are all living in service of a Master. That's what the Bible means by that. To be a slave means you have a Master. We're all that way. But notice, friends, the Bible says there are only two. We might think we're our own Master. But that's not an option. That kind of view that we're our own master was characterized uh, wonderfully in the uh, poem *Invictus* by William Ernest Henley, who wrote this. This kind of sums up the can-do attitude of someone who doesn't believe they're, who believes they can do it on their own. He wrote this: "Out of the night that covers me, black as the pit from pole to pole, I thank whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul." No, no, you're not. And if you think you are, the Bible says, you have already been deceived. Not by God, but by the evil one. Oh, the evil one wants you to think you are the master. When actually, you're bound... By him, slave to sin or slave of righteousness, mastered by Satan or mastered by Christ in the kingdom of Satan or the kingdom of Christ, held in bondage as the goods of the evil one or set free, taken captive by Christ the king. Now, this is what you hear. This is what you see, says Jesus, in my life and ministry. This is what we're all hearing, what we're all seeing as we travel through the gospel of Mark. As Matthew put it this way. Jesus saying, but if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? This is what I have done, says Jesus. This is what I am doing. There's references to this. Uh, throughout the Scripture, when Jesus sends out the, uh, the disciples in Luke chapter 10, they go out and uh, as the apostles and, and, and they're able to cast out demons and people are being healed and made whole and they come back and they say, Jesus, this is what's happening. And you know what Jesus says to them? He says, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. That's why, you see, these people are being set free. Because Satan is... Fallen and he's been bound. Colossians 2.15 tells us that God has uh, triumphed through Jesus at the cross. And he has, uh, uh, he has put all the powers and principalities to shame, triumphing over them at the cross. Revelation 20 verse 3 says that Satan is, is, is bound for a thousand years and cast down, Friends, this happens in the life and ministry of Jesus right now, right here. It's not Satan who is working mightily. It is Satan being crushed and defeated at the hands of Jesus by the Spirit of God. Oh, friends, this is the, this is the reality of the Christian ministry. This is what we're doing here. This is what we're seeing. The coming of the kingdom of God, breaking into the kingdom of Satan, that those in chains might be set free. Satan is the strong man, but Jesus is the stronger. Satan may be the prince of the world of evil, but Jesus is the king of the world of grace. Satan has a house, but it has been officially condemned and awaits the wrecking ball. And Satan has a kingdom, but he is a traitor and a usurper. And all authority and power in heaven and earth belongs to the rightful king. And he wants his kingdom back. And this is what the church and the ministry and the gospel is all about. Plundering those goods that Satan has tried to wrench Away from the rightful king. This is the point of preaching. This is the point of Bible study. Uh, This is the point of our fellowship and ministry and outreach together. This is the point of prayer. This is the point of missions and evangelism that the kingdom of God come in the person and work of Jesus Christ would be manifest in this world as Satan loses his grip on his captives who in Christ are set free from sin and the fear of death and hell. This is what raising your children in the fear and nurture of the Lord is all about. This is what training your children in the ways of the Lord, teaching them the gospel is all about. That they might not be captive to Satan and sin and all its consequences, but that they may be held captive and captivated by Jesus Christ and His grace and His love and His mercy and His forgiveness. And that all of us would be captivated by His love and grace and mercy. This is what Jesus is doing, setting the captives Free. Friends, this is what we need to see. This is what we need to hear, says Jesus. This is what's happening. Strong man bound. I'm plundering his goods. People are being set free by the King of glory. He is Lord, and his kingdom comes. And I think Jesus would want us to. We need to. Have you seen that? Have you heard that? Do you understand that? This is why Jesus has come to set all of us free from bondage to sin and Satan and evil and death. Do you see that? Have you believed it? And have you yourself experienced that? Oh, I've been set free through my faithful and loving Savior's free to live for him. He is worthy of your worship. You can trust him. You can submit your life to him. And you can die well in him, you see. In coming to him, you can be truly free, knowing that your only comfort in life and in death is that uh, you are not your own. But you belong body, soul, to your faithful Saviour. Jesus Christ. So the charge is wrong. He's not out of his mind. And he's not serving the evil one. We'll come back to the rest of this passage next week. But he's not crazy. He's not evil. So I guess that just leaves us with um, leaves us with this. Uh, that he is all that he claimed to be. Lord, Savior, and King. Oh, friends, may we be found at his feet even today. Let's pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word of Scripture. We thank you, Lord, that even in the, um, the accusations of, of men, that we hear the Lord Jesus speaking to us clearly of who he is and why we should love him with all our heart and soul and strength and mind. We love him because he first loved us and came to set us free. Help us, Lord, to see that apart from him, we're in bondage to sin, but in Him, we are free, we are forgiven, we are cleansed, and we are made new that we might serve in, uh, in the fellowship of the King all our days. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.